five. You look great. Your hair looks oh, great. I'm, anyway, I'm stunningly gorgeous, and I'm so happy this is being recorded so that future generations will know how self-centered I was. Oh my god, uh, same here. But anyway, you're awesome, and like I'm very thankful for um, Jim McCauley, the co-founder of Score, introduced us, and obviously, um, you've been mentioned to me by like multiple of my guests, and then you're definitely famous in the scene of celebrities and uh, famous people, <laughs> entrepreneurs, uh, Olympic people. But anyway, so just like um, highly influential people in general. And I've been like re-listening to your book. Um, you're invited. Definitely everyone should check this out. And also the... Um, and even if you I don't check it out, just give it five stars. Yeah, exactly. You know, like you don't even need to read it. Just like skip to the end and five star. Same as this podcast, please. Like, this is how we got views, okay? But um, anyway, so you're super famous and you're super influential. Let's talk about how you all got started. So, like, you were basically, you traveled over seven continents. This is what I get from listening to the 2 a.m. book. And then mm -hmm. um, also, okay, so let's just give the story of like John Levy. Like, how did the backstory? And sure. then, how did you get like celebrity to make guacamole at your house and clean your dishes and all that stuff? Sounds great. So, uh, just for those of you who are joining us, uh, Grace is pointing to the fact that I spend much of my time convincing uh, complete strangers to come to my home, cook me dinner, wash my dishes, clean my floors, and oddly, they thank me for it. And what's the craziest part is that I invite 12 people at a time to cook a secret dinner together. They're not even allowed to talk about what they do or give their last name, so it's completely anonymous. And after we cook this meal, we sit down to eat, and people get to try and figure out who they're sitting with, and they find out they're with Olympians and astronauts and Nobel laureates and celebrities and CEOs and C-suite of major companies and so on and so forth. And I've hosted uh, over 3,000 people at over like almost 350 dinners. Um, and so, uh, but if you really kind of look at my backstory, it doesn't make any sense. And that's uh, because I'm, I came to this country, the child of immigrants. I really had no concept of American culture whatsoever. My, my father was uh, pretty successful as an artist, but it wasn't something that, um, like, I wasn't really integrated into American culture. And when I was in my late 20s, I realized that I'd kind of hit a rut. I was uh, underemployed. I was smart and everything, but nobody really noticed me. And I was frankly overweight and I had, <laughs> I was totally broke. And I came across some research that was kind of wild. It was about the obesity epidemic. And it was by these two researchers, Nicholas Christakis and James Fowler. And they were curious, does obesity spread from person to person like a cold or is it a percentage of the population? And what they found was startling. If you have a friend who's obese, your chances of being obese increase by 45%. Your friends who don't know them have a 20% increased chance. And their friends have a 5% increased chance. And that was startling, but it made me realize a few things. First of all, this kind of effect was true for happiness and voting habits and smoking habits and divorce rates and marriage and all these kinds of things meaning everything spread from person to person. So I asked myself, 
maybe the issue with me being fit isn't that I don't have enough willpower because I would set my alarm for 6 a.m. and then fall right back asleep and not go to the gym. Maybe the issue is that I'm just surrounded with the people who are giving me the habits that I have. Maybe I need to expand who I spend my time with to be around exceptional and extraordinary people, the kind that I really admired. Um, and then I would gain their habits from knowing them. So if I want to get fit, maybe I need to spend time with athletes. If I want to become a successful business person, maybe I need to spend a lot more time with successful business people. But the problem I faced was that nobody really noticed me. I wasn't important in any way or influential. I was 28 years old and, and frankly, unremarkable. And so I spent about a year trying to understand the behavior of really influential people. And what I didn't understand is that it wasn't just a difference in like, oh, if I just do this thing, then I'll be accepted by them. I literally had to understand and learn about it as if it's a new language because it was so different than what I grew up with. And uh, from that year of research, I developed kind of a discovery of a few things that would really cause them to engage with me. And from that, I built the dinners and this community that's grown to thousands of people across 11 cities, four countries, and it's been a real privilege. Totally. Okay. So I have so many questions. So let's first talk about, you know, you were this 28 years old person and then you were not very influential. You spent, you spent a year like studying this, um, basically studying like this new language of being influential or like studying successful people, assuming. What does that entail? Like, does that mean like you read all the books? And obviously you mentioned a lot of really interesting example from your book, from, mm -hmm. you know, I like I've learned a lot. And then like, I've been, this is the second time I'm listening to it. So I'm like a listener. I don't, I don't read anything. I feel, I, I feel bad to say that, but anyway, so. Why? I think. I'm, I, I'm just so you know, I'm dyslexic. For oh, me really? to sit down and read a book is really hard. So I listen to everything. I think what's important is that are you exposing yourself to new ideas that open your mind and to new ways of thinking? And mm -hmm. are you doing it in a way that you actually retain the information, right? Like, are you able to, oh, think back to it and remember some of it? I, I can I can only remember things when I'm like active listening by active listening. I mean, like literally having a conversation with you, the author that like forced me to study. But otherwise, I'm like, a really passive listener but i i like have these chats a lot so i feel like i retain some information but anyway i think you're killing it okay let's talk about you are i think what things that you really undersell yourself it's like you know you talk about these other people's story you talk about the ikea story you talk about the dr death you talk about like you know uh you know the weight watcher lady but anyway so and like you talk about this a guy who assemble like a team of like soldiers to like make them like like each other within like a week mm -hmm. or so because they all hate him. Anyway, so these are like really interesting story. I want to listen. Like I want to talk about your story first, right? Like so you're this 28 years old and now like so you're like um you have like ensemble like a lot of amazing dinners and obviously like really influential people talk about you 
behind mm-hmm. your back to like all have like really good things to say about you. <laughs> and I wonder It's funny what- that you say behind my back <laughs> because usually when people say that it means it's like negative, but I'm flattered that they're saying good things behind <laughs> my back. Look, like English is my second language, so like No, I no, I, I totally I get it. I think it's it's uh I'm I'm incredibly impressed that you, I don't you know, I've tried to learn in a third language many times and never been able to do it. Uh, so wow. Very impressed. Well, you only need like a second language, which, which is like, you know, the successful people language, like you mentioned, you're learning a new language. Okay. I wonder, okay, so how do you transform yourself to this really overly confident person to host these dinners? And then what is this? Like, I've never been to these dinners. I'm going to self-invite myself to one of your dinners in the future. In my I don't life. even I, handle I the, participate. the guest list. Uh, yeah. So how do I transform myself? I, I want to start off by saying, I don't know if I'm overly confident. I would, um, I, I think that I'm uh, incredibly trained. And what I mean by that is that to get to the point where I'm hosting all these really successful people, I had to go through a really large and awkward growth stage, right? I didn't grow up understanding how to interact with wealthy people or uh, successful people. That wasn't something that I was ever taught. And it wasn't really, you know, my dad had some success, but he was, you know, one of 12 kids in one of the poorest neighborhoods in Tel Aviv, Israel. It wasn't like we grew up around this. So I think more so than me being confident is the fact that I was willing to look like an idiot. And I mean, embarrass myself constantly. I would walk up to complete strangers and say, hey, I hear you're really interesting. I run this dinner series. And sometimes they would look at me like I was completely insane. Sometimes they would love the idea. But with each failure, I would analyze it and try to understand what I did poorly and what I did well. But I experienced so much embarrassment. And I think that what you're seeing as confidence is actually competence. It's that I was willing to go through all that awkwardness to develop a new skill set in how I communicated with people. And so I I wish I could say I had some like miraculous transformation and like you see in movies or something like that. But really it was born from uh, what I would call anti-fragility. Have you ever heard of this term? No, (laughs) sorry. Anti-fragility is if I have a glass and I drop it, it's fragile, it'll shatter, right? Then there are things that are robust. Um, The building I'm in, if you hit it with something will keep standing. Nothing will happen to the building. But there's a third state and it's really living systems function this way. It's called anti-fragility, which is there are certain things when you put pressure on them, they actually get stronger, like our muscles, right? You lift some weights and the following days, your muscles should be stronger. Now, our social skills are the same way, which is if I go out there and I strike up a conversation with you, and then I mess something up or it doesn't go well, as long as I learn from it and keep trying, my social skills will improve. And so I think that that the reason that a lot of this succeeded was just simply that I had a tolerance for embarrassing myself that was way higher than most people. And I kept learning. What is the most embarrassing things that you have done that you kept to learn from? Oh my God. Uh, that's, here's the problem. 
It's more like death by a thousand cuts. It's making all those jokes that I thought would be funny and then don't land and realize, oh, I just embarrassed myself in front of the group. Or um, I would walk up to somebody and I think especially in the early days when I didn't understand what, how to communicate the, the dinners, I would describe it as this like ultra exclusive, super cool, like, and I would oversell it. And it would probably feel more like I was trying to make up for some insecurity, which was probably true. Uh, then it actually felt like a really special experience. And now I say, hey, I run this kind of wild dining experience. We invite 12 really interesting people uh, to cook an anonymous dinner together. And when the guests sit down to eat, they find out they're sitting with, you know, Olympians and astronauts and executives and award winners. And it's been a real pr privilege to host all these people. I've done it hundreds of times. And as a byproduct of being able to communicate it in a way that is less showy, I think people end up taking it more seriously. That's deep. <laughs> I wonder, I have a question for you. So mm -hmm. you, you were saying your first dinner was like a bunch of friends or whatever. You basically tell people you don't know what you're doing. And then the air conditioner broke down. Oh my God, it was so hot. Yeah. Um, I wonder like. Not like when Paris Hilton says it's so hot. I mean, it was just like really warm. <laughs> um, I wonder when from that era to now like you have posts like over three thousand people like world-class leaders mm -hmm. all that stuff so i guess like number one is like how did you get started because of like i think and then at what point do you feel like that was an inflection point of john 2.0 or whatever like you know how like how does that journey kind of like evolved and how do you convince like people like Jim or whoever like come to your dinner? Um, so, okay. There were a lot of questions there and I'm going to try and break down the answers as best I can. So the first was, how did I go from that first dinner to a place where there was an inflection point? And the answer is I just never stopped. As long as I kept doing it, and I kept improving it and learning in the process, then eventually something would come of it, right? The, I think the important point is that it's not a business. I don't make money off of it. I lose a ton of money off of it, in fact. I do it because I feel like it's important to connect with people. Mm -hmm. And it's important to develop meaningful relationships. Now, Frankly, you know, dinner parties are just terrible. <laughs> it's like you're only stuck next to the person you don't necessarily want to sit with. So if people are trying to start something, I actually don't recommend a dinner. What I tend to recommend is like go on a hike, play games, do active activities that, that bond people. Because there's something called the Ikea effect. It's that we care more about our Ikea furniture because of the effort we put into, into assembling it. And so... If, I could find an activity that the two of us can do that requires both of us to put in effort, then we'll actually increase the experience of belonging and connection between us. I have a question there. Mm -hmm. So I think number one is like, if you're suggesting something super unconventional, like 
unless a person already kind of heard about you somewhere, like I feel like it's really hard to convince them to be like, hey, Jim McElvey, please go on a hike with me. Like he would think I'm crazy, right? Like if we're doing like a podcast or something, that's like really normal. Like, you know, I, I actually disagree with you. And so there's a few things. You asked, how do you get somebody like Jim McKelvey to attend an event? I, Jim is in the rare collection of people that are so wildly curious that when you have something that stands out as unique and so different, he's an automatic yes. Now, I would argue that it's because the dinner was so different or is so different that people say yes to it. A executive does not need another casino-themed fundraiser to attend. They've been to 100. So if it isn't different, if it isn't standing out in some way, the brain won't notice. So the fact that you are doing a, I don't know, hike or a, what's the new game that everybody loves? Uh, it's like tennis, uh, pickleball. If you're doing a pickleball tournament, then it stands out as different and interesting. And people actually want to engage around it. But if what you're doing is just the same old boring thing, then why would they participate? So the answer in general comes down to these things. The first is, is it generous? Right? If people don't feel like they're going to get more out of it than the investment they're putting in, why would they participate? The second is, is it novel? Does it stand out as unique or different? The brain actually responds to something that's novel, triggering it to explore and understand what this novel thing is. The third characteristic is curation. Now, the most influential people in our culture, everybody thinks that we are uh, that they're spending their time with other influential people. But the truth is they're mostly spending their time with their admins and their assistants. So it's a little, I think, ridiculous for us to waste their time with something that's uninteresting. And so by having something that's generous, novel, well-curated, and ideally triggering some kind of awe or wonder, it, it stands out as so special that then people want to attend. I guess, like, how do you, I guess, like, there's two part of the story. I feel like one part is getting a uh, high audience. Hi, fan. Great meeting you. Anyway, so um, basically, I wonder when, when it comes to the, there's two part of the story, right? Like, one part is, like, getting to meet these really inf influential people and like actually having a conversation with them, building meaningful relationships. On the other hand, like, you know, as any entrepreneur will face, like the biggest problem is like, how do we um, build a business around what we love to do? Mm -hmm. um, how exactly do you kind of like um, create this relationship between like building a meaningful relationship to eventually like having a successful business and slash like, you know, leveraging your network into something, um, into like a successful business in general. So I think that there's a few things here. The first is 
I invite and connect with people because I really love people. Like to me, this idea of, you know, when you look at the research on networking, uh, it suggests that people feel dirty doing it. And that's because it gives the feeling that I'm using you for my personal gain. Meanwhile, making friends doesn't have that relationship to it. You don't feel dirty for making friends. You feel very happy. And so I think the first thing is I actually want to make friends. Not only do I want to make friends, I think it's really important to connect other people so that they make more friends. Because right now we're dealing with the greatest loneliness epidemic in recorded history. It's really bad. And so now that I have all these relationships that are so trusted, there were a few things that I did as I was building up the dinners. The first was I knew that at some point I would have a story to tell. I didn't know what it would be. I didn't know if it would be a business or a book or something completely different. So I did a few things. The first was I made sure to invite a really diverse group of people. So do I have anything to pitch an Olympian? No. Do I have anything to pitch a Nobel laureate? Absolutely not. But getting to expose my community to this diversity of thinking made it more and more novel. So people were more and more excited to attend and participate. It gave people a sense of belonging so they'd keep wanting to show up. The other thing I kept doing was I'd always make sure that I'd invite a lot of media people and that they knew that the experience was off the record. Because even though I had nothing to promote, I knew one day I would. And so it'd be really wonderful to have those relationships long before I ever needed them. So what ended up happening was I became a central hub for people to interact and connect. And because of that, I always had an excuse to invite people to something. So rather than like, you know, some people have a newsletter, I have one of those too, and people can sign up for it. But the other thing I have is a living community. And so when I finally do have something to promote, I can call up just about anybody in the community and say, hey, I'm working on this. Can I get a few minutes of your time? And so now it's warm. And I made that relationship years before I needed it. Now, if I would have invested the same amount of effort into building up some startup, who knows, would I be more successful? Sure, maybe I'd have hundreds of millions of dollars. But here's the funny thing. When you talk to the people who have done that and made all that money, a lot of them are very often lonely or disconnected or worried that people are just their friends because of the money. And don't get me wrong, if you were to give me $100 million, I'd gladly take it. <laughs> But what people end up wanting to do when they have that money is the things I'm already doing. I'm hanging out with interesting people, having fantastic conversations, getting to travel around the world and have the relationships I've always wanted. So it's, you, you know, when you look at the science of human behavior, the stuff that really defines us is our relationship from our happiness to our business success, to our health and wellness, to how long we live. And so I figured, why not invest all my effort into the things that actually improve life? I think I love what you said. I'm to a degree. I like kind of feel the same way. Um, I wonder, but like on the other hand, like how do you financially sustain yourself? I know that you consult 
Fortune 500 companies. And how do you kind of like build a business around you? Oh, so I spend a lot of time thinking about the way that people connect and the way that companies connect with their customers or their employees. And then I work with companies and I give talks and do trainings and write books. And I'm viewed as a, I like to think, a thought leader in the industry. And frankly, I, I think I do a really fantastic job with that. So companies hire me every month. You know, a few companies hire me to come to their offices, their offsites, or do stuff virtually. And then because of my expertise in how people connect, I also developed something called Turnkey Teams. So people can go to johnlevy.team, J-O-N-L-E-V-Y.team. And there you can get... Um, you can see kind of these programs that we've developed to help people connect faster and help their teams be more effective by developing deeper relationships. So all that together, you know, gives me a wonderful lifestyle. And do I invest a lot into it through the dinners? Yeah. A lot of the people that come have no business value whatsoever, and I don't really mind that. And every so often, you know, those lead to also business opportunities or proves my reputation for being able to connect with people. So it works out. When you mentioned like, you know, helping teams to build like deeper relationships, I guess mm -hmm. like how do you measure that? Do you, let's say like, do you create like a template that kind of, hey, here's like our intensive training program <laughs> for XYZ company. And then we're going to help you generate X billion dollar revenue more than your existing revenue line. <laughs> or like, mm -hmm. how do you kind of productize yourself? And if I could tell a company that I would increase revenue by billions, by the way, then frankly, I'd be, have made so much money that uh, I, I don't know if I would have had time to do this. So uh, you flatter me too much, Grace. Um, so the way that we, we look at connection and trust and all these things, there's a whole bunch of different metrics a company can kind of like measure, right? So right. I could measure or ask you, do you feel like people trust you at the office, right? Or do you trust your boss? Or even better, I might ask you, if somebody from an outside company were to look into the company, how much do would they say people trust each other? Because then you get a more honest answer, right? If, if I say, oh, how much do people trust each other at the company? Then you feel like, well, you know, I have to say a nice answer because what if they look at my results? But if you say, oh, if an outsider is doing it, oh, they would probably do it, say this. So you get more of an honest answer. Uh, you can look at frequency of communication. You can look at badge swipes at the office and if people actually stay there. You can see who's attending which meetings. There are all these kind of different data points. None of them is perfect because what we're actually measuring is feeling. And feeling is, you know, amorphous. A lot of the time we don't know how we're feeling. Um, when it comes to, I guess, like when, I guess I have two parts of the question. One is like, okay, you have done these dinners. Like at what point did you start your own business? Because I know that like you were a director at another company mm -hmm. before, you know, like before like 2014, like before 2015. So, and then 
like I, I guess like how do you like at what point how long have you hosted the the influencer dinner i believe started in like 2009 so that's 2009 after, or 2010 maybe yeah, yeah sometime so around. that's kind of like five years before you kind of um i was an entrepreneur beforehand i had a yeah. whole slew of failed startups uh well, mostly a failure in well, life let's be honest yeah and then um I went to work for a company. I enjoyed it. It was super interesting. And uh, they shut down the division of the company. I lost my job. I felt really embarrassed uh, that, you know, I was still hosting all these fancy people and I didn't have a, a job anymore. And so I tried to turn that into, oh, I host events. Maybe I could become a consultant on how to design events. And for years, I worked with companies on how they engage their customers. And then during the pandemic, everything fell apart. Right? I lost 70% of my business overnight because the nobody was hosting any more events. And so I pivoted and I started doing new research and I ended up doing this and it's been super interesting. And I bet in five years, I will be doing something completely different, right? Like my career continues to change and evolve. So. I don't want to claim that like, hey, does my company do really well? Yeah, but I'm not even sure what I'm going to be doing a bunch of years down the line. The economy is going to change and the way people work is going to change and probably what I do changes. When you start like a business over the events, mm -hmm. um, were your first client some people who are like the people who came to you dinner? Some or, of them were, were there, yes, for sure. And then a whole bunch were people who read about me in articles. Uh, and my, you know, or people that were introduced to me through friends or former dinner guests. Uh, but the, the point was that the more people I could be exposed to, the more chance I had for success. And here's what's interesting. My biggest clients did not come from the places I thought they would. So I would think, oh, if I just hosted this person, I'll get their company as a client, right? And if I hosted somebody from Sony, oh my God, they host so many events. I bet we could do something huge and nothing would end up working out there. And then I would host you know, an author and they said, oh, hey, my best friend works at this company. You should talk to them. And that turned into a very big deal, right? And so I was, consistently surprised by how I couldn't predict which in uh, which connections would turn to business and which ones wouldn't. And so mm -hmm. I kind of stopped measuring these things. I just kept saying, okay, let me just focus on having great relationships and something will come from somewhere. I completely agree with you. <laughs> uh, I feel like it's kind of when you're, if, if you're just doing your thing and then you kind of like expand the surface area of luck and mm -hmm. you expose yourself to like people who were not like trying to get something out of you. So that maybe make it a lot better because of like the pressure is low on everybody's end. You don't have to perform to attract the business and then the business kind of like come and fight you. Yeah. It's uh I, I love the way you said that. What was it? Increase the surface area, area of luck? Yeah. Increase the surface area. research about this. And the research uh, looked at 
which artists became successful? Was it the ones that had just a lot of shows? Was it, and what essentially they found, uh, the researchers who were looking at this, was that the more shows a person had to different groups, the more chance that they would succeed. Mm. Right. So if you were continuously showing to the same groups, then yeah, they already knew you. Like how many times can you sell to the same people? Maybe mm -hmm. certain ones become super collectors, but for the most part, being out there and coming in contact with as many different people was what led to commercial success. And so I love that you said, oh, increase the surface area of your luck. Yeah, staying at home, probably not the best way to create luck, but going to lots of events with a lot of different people and getting to meet lots of different people increases what you call the surface area of luck. I loved it. Fantastic. Awesome. Um, I'm glad you agree. Hi, Ariel. Um, so I wanted to say, <laughs> okay, so I have a question for you. Sure. You are someone like, okay, so let's say after you create the dinner, after you met someone or like when you invite someone, was it like, you have to meet them somewhere or like do you have the cold call or like on the internet or like how do you number one find i mean i i don't think if, like number one is like how do you find the contact of these people besides like like i don't know using uh what is it called rocket search or whatever so i guess like um after so i guess like what's the for, first point of contact or does it have to be because you talk about it in your book like you know people should capitalize on the relationship that they already have not capitalized but like they should feel free to ask introductions from other people mm -hmm. and i wonder um i wonder like what's your thinking framework on like expanding your circle and like were the people who came to your dinner you have to meet them somewhere or they just organically heard of heard of you their like self-application or was it like introduced by other guests in the dinner number one is like how do you select this group and then number two is like how do you continue this relationship after let's say i came to your dinner i have an amazing experience do people just form like a whatsapp group with each other or like how do people no. i've never found that a whatsapp group works especially with people who are successful and busy mm -hmm. it's really active for 24 hours and then the half-life is zero and then you get one like happy birthday every so often Oh my WhatsApp God. WhatsApp groups work when people are really invested in each other, like a family group or, you know, a group. I have one that's really active for my daughter. I have a daughter born about nine months ago. And oh, I have a, I have a seven month old. Congratulations. Oh, oh good. And, um, and those are great because there's always a reason to share a photo or something cute. Right. Mm -hmm. And here's what I've, so let's take this piece by piece, so I make sure I answer all of your questions. Um, how do I find the initial people? Initially, it was people I met out. So I'd go out, make contacts, and then I'd, you know, call it a day. Some came through introductions, but what you'll notice is that it's, you know, one, two, or 3% of your entire group recommends everybody, and the rest of them don't recommend anything. Uh, so you want to find those super connectors and really hang on to them and develop a real relationship with them because you'll get a lot more valuable relationships through them than through the other people. And then what we just did was we hired a bunch of virtual assistants on what now became Upwork. 
and their job was to research potential guests and we gave them instructions. So we said, find me every Olympian in the US. Find me every Grammy, Oscar, uh, you know, uh, every head of museum, whatever it is that you could imagine, we had them track them down. And then we developed and tested and tested and retested and re-optimized the invitation email. And now it is like simple and clean and I'd say relatively effective. And uh, nobody knows me ahead of time. Um, and when they arrive, my job is to make them feel as welcome as possible. Um, I think, I think, okay, so. Ariel, thank you very much. Yeah, thank I, you. Anne has a question. She said, just curious, how do you establish a deep relationship in a short period of time? And I like Grace's question. How do you continue that relationship considering everyone is so busy? Okay, so the relationship, uh, fan, I'm gonna give you some a little secret about how human beings uh, develop a depth of relationship. The first thing is to understand what I call stacking. And stacking works like this. Researchers had people stop strangers on the street and ask for complex directions. And mostly they didn't get them. So they tried something else. They said, oh, excuse me, what's the time? And the moment that somebody gave them the time, then they would ask for the directions and they almost always got it. And the reason is that once somebody invests some effort into our relationship, we are viewed as somebody worthy of more effort. So you wanna go from small to large. Now, here's the next secret tip. When you build trust, the most basic unit of trust, the smallest is something called a vulnerability loop. Vulnerability loop is person one signals vulnerability. So let's say I have a child two months, it's uh, about before Grace had hers. If Grace calls me up and says, John, I've never changed a diaper. I have no clue what I'm doing. I'm kind of freaking out. If she signals vulnerability and I make fun of her or ignore her, trust will be reduced. But if I acknowledge it and I say, Grace, I totally get it. And then I signal vulnerability to the same degree. Before I had my kid, I'd never change a diaper either. I was totally freaking out. I thought I would do something terrible. When I, like, I just make a mess of things. I'm so worried. I was so worried. But let me just talk you through it. It's not that hard. The moment I signal vulnerability to the same degree that Grace has, trust increases to this higher level. Person one signals, person two acknowledges, person two signals, person one acknowledges, trust increases. So, Fan, if you want to increase trust quickly with people, we want to put them in a state where one, you start off small and increase by stacking. And the second is you find ways to open and close vulnerability loops quickly. Now, what does that mean? That does not mean you come up to them and say, oh, I think I'm getting a divorce, <laughs> right? That's like <laughs> too much. <laughs> that loop is too big for them to open. It's completely outside the range. You've gone too vulnerable too quick. What you want to do is ideally find a scenario where both of you are going to be in a vulnerable state. So Grace mentioned, hey, maybe what if we went on a hike? Okay, now we're both putting effort. We're outside the normal behaviors. As we're putting effort, we're going to be in vulnerable states. 
What's even more effective than that is if both of us need to accomplish a, a task together and there's a limited amount of time. So let's say we go volunteer together. Suddenly, as we're putting in the effort to, let's say, build a house or something, we're opening and closing those vulnerability loops really quickly. And so suddenly, in the matter of a 15-minute game or an hour or two of volunteer work, you feel more connected to a person than months on Zoom calls. So uh, that's my recommendation on how to, to quickly build a relationship. Uh, I hear your daughter, by the way. Yeah, yeah. Is say hi to her. Um, say hi to her for us. And um, I wonder, okay, um, how do you... <laughs> maybe she should come onto the show <laughs> but i wanted to ask her what's her name but I, i'm aware of this is a public conversation i don't fan i love it yes you nailed it okay so i i guess like i guess like when i hear about this in your book for the first time i feel like one of the challenge would be um right now we're living in a digital society and i wonder how do we like quickly establish this like vulnerability loop like how do we quickly close it because let's say if i send you an email ask you how do i change a diaper you will probably be like grace there's a thing called google or like chat gpt like stay away from me but i wonder like how GPT you... to change a diaper <laughs> yeah. I love it. um but you never know well like i i guess like there's like a lot of simple question could be answered on the internet so unless you are putting yourself out there like physically you are meeting these people in the first place it's hard to establish like the multiple layer of like vulnerability loop right like how do you recreate that on the internet and since like you know let's say we both like so basically there's like a lot of people in our network and i'm sure like you know you're trying to build really deep meaningful relationship with each person but what's your like I guess like what is the CRM in your head not like CRM it sounds very transactional but I feel like to build a deeper relationship you have to create a system for yourself to um essentially like remind you to the other person like or like basically like keeping them in the loop right how do you create that system for yourself to having these 3,000 amazing individuals in your orbit? Hmm. So there's a few things. Number one is I want the people I meet to meet as many people at, that I know as possible because then my name is more likely to come up and the people I know are amazing. So like that means that they're going to have a positive impact on each other. So the more I can integrate people into other relationships I have, the closer they become to me. The second thing is I want to um, always have something to invite people to so that they realize there's a community, not just an event. And there's consistency. And that invitation makes them feel special for making it into the inner circle. And it also reminds them of my existence. Um, he says, I still remember at the dinner I attended, you were responding to something I said with, that's because you're really, uh, you're a really intentional leader. 
it impressed me and also surprised me that you either had researched me or made that judgment about me directly. It was uh, Steve's behavior uh, that really, uh, or, or the, probably the story he may have shared. There was something about it that made it clear that if he took that action, there was intentionality around it. He had thought something through that most people would never think through. Um, I guess like when you're thinking about like, okay, so basically you mentioned two things. One thing is community is bigger than event. So consistently delivering value to people. Yep. And then you are consciously, you're like intentionally building, making inner circle. And I wonder when it comes to all of these people, how do you prioritize who to reach out first? And then like, you know, obviously 3,000 people, mm -hmm. if you re-invite them to an event, um, it will be a lot of more dinners, right? And then the other thing is like, what's your thought on competition? Because- So let, let me, before we start diving into another question. Yeah. Um, my objective is to build a community. And for that, I need as many of the members bonding with each other as possible. Now, who do we prioritize in an event? Uh, we intentionally try not to. I want a random selection so that everybody has an equal chance of an invitation. I don't want to just invite A through J to an event and because then K onward will never meet that first group. So I want to consistently have events where everybody gets to meet a random swath. That'll also mean that there'll be a certain percentage of people that are familiar, so you feel safe. And there'll be a certain percentage of people that are um, that are brand new, so it feels exciting. Um, and that's kind of the, the approach. Now, are there things that, um, I think that then the question becomes, are there subgroups or sub events that we do prioritize people? And the answer is absolutely. So for example, for a while we were running an LGBT plus workout so that members who self-identified are allies of the community. And so people who are interested in that, we would invite them and focus on that. And like it wouldn't go out to everybody because, or our women of influence event only went out to women. Uh, but we essentially just set up our, our email system to do random selections because I, I didn't want to actually um, have to go through the list and prioritize. Like, you know, also who I want to necessarily hang out with that isn't the same people as who the community wants to hang out with. I want them to be able to hang out with a wide variety of people. And if, you know, left to my own devices, I'd bring all the geeky scientists because I want to learn about their research. Um, I wonder what's your way to view competition? Because I'm sure there's, you live in New York or you lived in New York. I don't know where you live right now, but like, um, because I, I did get an email from you at like 10 PM. So I, I, I don't know if you actually live in New York because that's your way. Oh, I, I do. I actually have a general policy that I don't answer emails after a certain hour, uh, because I don't want people to feel obligated to respond. But since mm -hmm. we were coming on today, I yeah. figured it was time sensitive. So I wonder, thank you, by the way, super thankful for that. And then I wonder like, what's your thought on competition? Because in New York, there's so many interesting people who are trying to put in 
put together dinners and try to recreate the success that you have done. Um, what's your thought on like, oh, you invite XYZ and then they just went out and then invite like these people to their event in the future? Wait, so you're think, saying, does it bother me if any of my guests then turn around and invite other guests to an event? Uh, or like trying, some people trying to recreate what you're doing. Like what's uh, we're, your we're very clear that we don't license the design and we, um, to anyone. And But also the, the important thing here is that uh, if anybody were to try to copy us, it would just piss off all the people in the community. And why would you want to piss off the most, you know, influential people mm -hmm. in our culture? Uh, the other thing is that why would anybody want to go to the second rate version of the actual thing? Like, <laughs> invent, go, go invent your own thing and make it special. And I actually don't view other communities as competition. I think that right now people are so lonely that I applaud anybody who gathers other people. I think it's really important. Quite the opposite. I think more people need to learn to gather interesting people uh, and that people need more relationships across industry. Uh, Steve just gave me a huge compliment. He says, I didn't know anyone, but I'm still friends with three fellow guests now. And that's all I want, right? I don't personally have the bandwidth to, to manage 3,000 relationships. But if Steve comes out of that with three new friendships, like that's awesome. That mm -hmm. positively impacts his life, hopefully, <laughs> in more <laughs> ways than I can count, right? Did a new business open? Who knows? Did it lead to just fun dinners and vacations and families getting to know each other? I really hope so. Or maybe it just led him to adjust to a city where he didn't know that many people and now felt like, hey, I belong. And then I've really done my job. I think what you have done is remarkable, but it can only happen in New York. Um, I, I mean, we, we host in 11 cities, so I'm right. not sure I agree. Uh, okay. I think so, that any place so, you go, you can gather people. You might not okay. be able to do the same format as I do. I agree. There are certain countries that like literally everybody who knows each other at the you know, top <laughs> of the country. Is that? Yeah. Every, every major business leader in Jamaica probably knows each other to some degree, right? Okay. Or, but so, it doesn't mean that you can't gather people. You can always gather people. And on average... Uh, on, on average, they their lives will probably be better for it. Right? Unless you're just a jerk and then don't gather people because you're <laughs> the jerk. Well, well, I live in Silicon Valley. I don't think everyone knows each other, but everyone all work in one industry kind of, which is tech, venture capital, or like whatever, a startup. I don't agree. So I, I meet lots of Olympians and there's several Nobel laureates that live there. And I can tell you that there's tons of people who work on everything from the major issues like homelessness and uh, drug abuse to you have fantastic academic institutions from Berkeley to Stanford. Like there's so many unique minds. What people fall to is technology, right? But that doesn't mean that the rest of the stuff doesn't exist. And mm. you could literally run a series just connecting interesting professors at Berkeley because there's so many of them. And there, a lot of them are doing fantastically interesting work. And you could have an amazing life just learning from them and bringing them together. When you are thinking about these big issues, so you talk about like solving, I don't know, world-class problems, but mm -hmm. as a regular person, most people just care about like 
what do I eat dinner tonight? Or like, how do I? That's like, a regular person. <laughs> I'd argue I'm a pretty regular person. And yes, I do worry about what I'm going to eat tonight. But the, I think that you, there is, research suggests that when you don't have enough money to cover food and rent and things like that, then a disproportionate amount of your energy goes to figuring that out constantly. So I respect that that uh, things change once people have like, let's say enough money, right? But I really, and this isn't modesty, I really don't think I'm that special. The only difference between me and the next person is how much embarrassment I've been willing to experience and that I kept learning from it, right? So it was my desire to learn and my curiosity and that I was willing to embarrass myself talking to people. But anybody can develop thicker skin. Anybody can deal with, learn to deal with those kinds of embarrassments and learning processes. I don't think you need to have some crazy high IQ or be from a rich family or anything like that. Uh, so I, I'm not sure I agree with you. And I'm sorry, I cut you off. I just didn't want to get too far down that idea that like, oh, somehow I'm so special or somebody else, like who cares? It, it's human beings. Anybody uh, can connect with other human beings. I think the other quick question I have is like, you know, I think you have like a really crazy mindset switch. And like, which is like, you know, like, he he here's why I say that. It's because of like, I feel like most people think they can't do what you do. How do you kind of convince yourself to know like you can accomplish this because most people just stop at like oh if i think i can get like an olympian i can get like a famous actor or like famous nba star or whatever come to my dinner like you know why why would they come to my dinner right so, so i want to be very clear and then i apologize i have i have a hard stop yeah um when i first started this i had no plans i just did it I didn't think, oh, I'm going to host the most famous people in the world or anything like that. I just literally kept doing it. And what happened was over time, I met an Emmy award-winning writer and they were the first kind of award winner that came to uh, a dinner. And then I hosted a, uh, he introduced me to a bunch of writers for The Daily Show. And so then I had a bunch of Emmy award winners. And then it occurred to me, oh, why don't I just start inviting? And so then it became the dinner where like award winners go. But it happened over the course of years. We underestimate the value of just continuously going and continuously doing. You gain experience, you learn, and you improve over time. I had no clue what I was going to do when I started. Anybody who, like, listen, do some people have like wild dreams and they're pursuing them? Sure. Most of the time when people become really, really successful, my bet is they didn't know from the start it was going to actually happen. What happened was they rewrote their memory <laughs> of the entire experience and were like, I was destined for this. I wasn't destined for anything. I'm a dyslexic kid, mm -hmm. a child of immigrants. I was destined to like be a mild screw up, right? Like not <laughs> hanging out with these people. I got really lucky and that luck came from increasing the surface area of my, right, to quote you. Um, 
I apologize. I have to go. Uh, this okay, has been go. a pleasure, Grace. Thank you very much. And thank you all thank for you so much. Uh, Everyone follow Don, buy his book. If you don't buy his book, just give a five star right now. Same as this podcast. It's called You're Invited. You can get it anywhere books are sold. Bye, everybody. Have a great Bye, day. Everyone. Thank you so much.